Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Speak On It, history and genealogy conversations with Janice and Shara Connor. We invite you to join us on Thursdays at 8 p.m. for an engaging exchange with us and our special guest as we cover various topics regarding history, genealogy, and your personal family history stories. I'm Janice Gilliard. And I'm Sharikana Feliciano. Welcome to Speak On It, History and Genealogy Conversations with Janice and Sharikana. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Today, we are joined by our guest, Charles Holman III. Attorney Charles Holman III is a tough-minded, seasoned litigator with decades of experience as an advocate and civil rights lawyer. Charles is the great-grandson of an enslaved person who, in freedom, became a civil rights leader and one of the first lawyers of color in his state. Since that time, nearly 150 years ago, civil rights has been a dedicated mission in Charles's family as well as Charles's personal calling. He, is also, he also posts frequently on several Facebook groups, which is how we learned about the phenomenal research that he is doing. Charles Holman, welcome to speak on it. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, Janice and Sharikanda. Thank you. Thank you. So we're happy to have you, and we'll just go ahead and get started. So our first question is, you know, we all have family stories passed down to us. Um, but even when a story is passed down to us in our families, there's usually so much more we don't know. Can you share your experience with our listeners that you've had with that? I'm glad to share it, and I have to tell you that This is something I enjoy so much, so it is really a pleasure to be with you both today and to have this chance to to talk a little bit about something so near and dear to my heart. But I want to focus on my paternal grandmother, who was from a small place in Canada and came to Michigan in the 1920s. And, you know, she was a very good grandmother and and everything you could want in a grandmother. But we always knew that there was something different about her because she was from Canada. And there came a time, of course, you know, when curiosity kind of catches up with you. and, and, And I remember approaching her and asking her about, you know, why she was from Canada and trying to learn a little bit more about that. And what she did was she explained to me that her grandparents had been enslaved people in the United States, and they had escaped from slavery in Kentucky and had made it all the way to Canada. And she said that her grandmother was a hero because after she was free in Canada, she kept going back to rescue other people. So we had a a Harriet Tubman of sorts in, in our But the interesting thing about it is, after talking to my grandmother and doing some research on it, I began to share the story about her escape with relatives in my family at different family reunions and so forth. And there came a time when I was at a family reunion in North Carolina, and a very elderly relative, who I'll call Aunt Maddie, 
happened to hear the story, and she came over to me, and she said, I know all about that story. And I'm thinking, you know, how could she know more about it than I do? I've researched this. My grandmother told me this and told me that. But she started to tell me what she knew, and it literally took my breath away because it was a whole different take on what my grandmother had told me. And keep in mind, when my grandmother told me the story, I was still in my teens, and there was only so much my grandmother would tell me because of my age. But Aunt Uh Maddie, on the other hand, when she went to tell me about the story, I was already an adult at that time. So there were details she could share with me that my grandmother could not. And what she told me was, she said, there is a reason why your grandmother's grandmother kept going back to Kentucky and rescuing other people. So I'm like, Uh. tell me, tell me, I want to hear this. And she said she actually escaped twice. And the first time she escaped, she was caught and she was sold to a new slaveholder. And then that slaveholder treated her very, very badly and sexually abused her. And Mm. she had a child by him. And the thinking was that if he could impregnate her, that would keep her from trying to escape again. But, you know, sometimes the mistreatment and the, the brutality is so great that you will risk almost anything to try to get away from it, which is what she did. And she escaped the second time, and with the help of sympathetic Quakers and and others, she was able to make it to Canada uh, where she was free. But she had to leave this child behind in order to escape. But the plan was that at some point she was going to get back and she was going to somehow figure out a way to rescue this child because she couldn't be without the child. And, you know, it's a strange thing because while it's her child, it's also the slaveholder's child. Right. So it's kind of like, you know, do you want the child by this slaveholder who's abused you? Or you want the Uh child because the child is yours. So she kept going back to try to get this child. But the slaveholder was on to her. And the story Aunt Maddie told me was that the slaveholder either moved the child or sold the child so she couldn't find him. But Uh each time she came back to Kentucky looking for this child, she helped other people escape. And the way she was able to do all of this and to move undetected was because she was Caucasian-like in appearance. And the Mm. Quakers that she worked with would dress her up as a young widow in mourning. They would put a black dress on her, a sunbonnet on her hair, and a heavy veil over her face. So people thought they were looking at a young white woman And they couldn't really get a good look at the face because of the veil. And it was a very effective disguise, but unfortunately, 
she wasn't able to find the child. So, you know, there's all of that that I didn't know, which spurred me to only want to know more. And from that, I began to research even more deeply and came to learn what my grandmother's, grandmother's maiden name was and some clues about her life in Kentucky. But I really couldn't get much further than that until DNA came along. Gotcha. And, you know, with the DNA, not only did it break some brick walls, but it opened up the whole family that my grandmother's grandmother had had in Kentucky and that she was forced to leave behind. What a That's a powerful story in itself story. and having your own personal uh, Harriet Tubman and how many of our families have uh, women or men um, that help people escape that we don't hear about, and that's why our research is so important. Um, our next question, yes. when we think about enslaved people who escaped, we don't always know much about the enslaved family they were forced to leave behind. What did you discover regarding your enslaved ancestors who escaped to freedom? Well, you know, there is so much that came to me as a result of DNA about the family that was left behind. And I guess I I have to say the ancestors were smiling or I got lucky or God just blessed me, but I happened to have a DNA match to a lady who not only matched me but matched a couple of my cousins. And one Uh of the things I've done with the DNA is since my grandparents were no longer living by the time the DNA came out, what I would do is I would test different cousins on different parts of the family. So I tested somebody who was related to me only through my grandmother's grandmother, tested somebody Uh else who was related to me through her grandfather. And what I did was I looked at my DNA matches and I looked at the matches of these other uh, cousins that I had also DNA tested. And that way I could really narrow it down to my grandmother's grandmother's line. And when Uh I did that, there was a lady uh, who had taken a DNA test and I saw she matched perfectly with us and I, you know, I, I eagerly clicked on her family tree thinking, ah, this is really going to open the door. But, you know, sometimes you have to do a little more work to really get the most out of it. And in this particular case, this lady had a nice family tree sketched out, but it didn't really go back as far as I needed because uh-huh. my grandmother's grandmother escaped from slavery in 1854. So I'm really looking at people, you know, behind that so-called 1870 brick wall that some genealogists say is a very difficult point for uh, black genealogists to penetrate. And, and I don't uh-huh. believe that, but, you know, there are a lot of people who say that. So what I did was I worked on this DNA matches family tree a bit more. And I was able to take it back a couple more generations. And lo and behold, this DNA match had an ancestor named Lucinda. And the maiden name for that ancestor was Granderson, 
the same maiden name that my grandmother's grandmother had. Wow. So I'm jackpot. I know I found <laughs> the right family now. And as I looked at that further, um, I, I began to explore some records in the Freedmen's Bureau. And they have a thing on there where they, they have the records of the Freedmen's Bureau Bank. And what it was is, you know, a place where newly freed people were able to uh, deposit their savings, uh, you know, in an institution run by the federal government. And because it uh-huh. was a federal agency, it kept pretty good records. And as I searched the database for the Freedmen's Bureau Bank, I found two men from the same area as my great-great-grandmother and my DNA matches ancestor with the same surname and in the same location. So wow. I thought, I'm on to something now. And as I looked at that further, the two men who had the accounts, the records showed that they were brothers. And I, I looked a little bit further into something that Bernice Bennett has done a wonderful job explaining how to, to, to do and how to utilize these records. But Bernice had done a, uh, uh, a presentation on um, uh, the records having to do with Civil War pensions. And, you know, Civil War pensions of both the soldiers in the Civil War and of their widows. And I noticed one of these two men that I suspected were related to my great-great-grandmother, one of them was a soldier uh, in the Civil War. So then I decided, let me get these pension records to see what they will tell me and whether they can help me to link this all up. And there's a lady that uh, is very, very helpful with these kinds of uh, things and who got the records for me, uh, Mrs. Angela Walton Raji. And, and she was excited. When I told her I wanted the records, she said, you got to get those records. So yeah. you know, a little bit of time went by, and she called me one day, and she said, I've got them. We made arrangements to meet. And I'll never forget at this Panera Bread uh, place in, in outside of Baltimore. And lo and behold, it was like opening up a treasure chest. That file told me about the other siblings. It told me who the parents were of my great-great-grandmother and these other people that turned out to be her siblings. And it even Mm -hmm. told me who the slaveholder was. And that was so critical because the slaveholder's surname was different from the surname of my great-great-grandmother and her siblings and her parents. But finding out who that slaveholder was opened up a whole other world of documents and even led me to find the plantation or farm where all of these people had been enslaved. So, you know, the DNA was critical. It opened up a whole family to me and took me back a couple more generations. And what I did at that point is um, Angela Walton Raji went a step further, and she said, I can get you a picture of those enslavers. And, you know, I'm thinking, how is she going to pull that off? But within (laughs) seconds, she had it, 
And let me tell you, never question an expert. Because these experts <laughs> like Bernice and, and Angela, they know what they're doing. And if yeah. they tell you something, you can take it to the bank. So I had pictures of these enslavers, and then the next thing was I need to go there and see this place where my people were enslaved. So from that, I had the name of, of, of the, the slaveholder. I began to look for his descendants in the area where the plantation was and where my people were enslaved. And lo and behold, I found them. And one of them was a lawyer like myself, and I reached out to him, and I told him what I was doing. And he said, well, you know, I have a cousin that may have some old records that will help you. So he gave me the number of his cousin, called his cousin, and his cousin said, yeah, I've got all these records on a CD. I can uh, email it. I can send it to you and take a look at it and see what you think. So this man emailed, uh, sent me these records, and I went through them one Sunday afternoon, and, I mean, it just it was phenomenal. Not wow. only did he have records of my great-great-grandmother before she escaped, but he had the siblings which further connected them all together. He had the parents of my great-great-grandmother, and he even had the bill of sale for when the slaveholder purchased my great-great-great-grandfather in 1817. Wow. So, and I mean, you know, it gives you a thrill to find these things. But at the same time, you know, it gives you kind of a a, a sad feeling because right. it kind of brings we, we talked to, to several of our guests the about reality that. Yeah. of, uh-huh. you know, the enslavement of your people and what was going on. So anyway, right. I, I contacted this man back that gave me these records, and I told him, you know, I really would like to meet you and see the place where – they were enslaved. And he said, well, you're in luck because we have another cousin who still owns the property and the original house of the slaveholder is still standing. And we kept one of the slave cabins, um, you know, as part of the the historic property. So I'm telling you, I was like, you know, I am going there. I'm going to see this. And we made arrangements. What state was it in? Yeah, this I was, was just going to ask Kentucky. for reference. Yes, okay. this was in Kentucky, and it was a it was a town just across the county line outside of Louisville. It was into the next county, okay. which is called Bullet County. And so I, I made arrangements to meet them. And you know, when you start really thinking about it, and you think about you know your ancestor escaped from the ancestors of these people. You know, you start to wonder, are these people, hello? Mm-hmm. Yes, we're here. Okay, I wasn't sure if we'd lost our connection. You, you start no, to you're wonder, good. are these people that <laughs> I really want to meet? Because, you know, the things their ancestors did were, were pretty terrible. But the right. thing you have to keep in mind in all of this is the people living today had nothing to do with slavery. And they are not people that 
ascribe to the same set of values that allowed people to be enslaved and 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 virtually imprisoned on these farms uh-huh. and plantations all across the South. So I had some trepidation, but I went there anyway. I met these people. They were wonderful. They gave me the tour. And I also set aside some time to go to the county courthouse to see if there was more that I could find that these people hadn't given me. And they gave me a lot. Uh But one of the things I found in the courthouse is their ancestors purchased a lot of enslaved people who were children. And I'm talking about kids that were seven years old, ten years old, and I even found one that was two years old. And, you know, when you go through those kinds of records and you see these children and you realize that these children are being, you know, torn from their parents and sold to people that they don't know, and, you know, it's just it's a horrible, horrible thing. But in those records, I also found the deed of sale for my great-great-grandmother's mother. And this was a document that, you know, the slaveholders' descendants did not give me. She was right. seven years old at the time. This happened in 1812, and she was with them, as far as I can tell, for the rest of her life. So, you know, there was a whole other side to this that my grandmother hadn't told me. And that uh-huh. DNA match to the lady was the first thing that really opened all this up. But I want to tell you a little bit more about that part, too, because that brings to mind another part of this story that my grandmother hadn't told me that the DNA really helped me with. And okay. like I mentioned, so before you my, start my, that second part, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll start out with that second part with more okay. from Charles Holman III. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Speak On It, history and genealogy conversations with Janice and Shara Connor. We invite you to join us on Thursdays at 8 p.m. for an engaging exchange with us and our special guests as we cover various topics regarding history, genealogy, and your personal family history stories. To our listeners, thank you for staying with us. And Charles, you want to finish your point? Sure. I was just talking about, um, I was going to talk a little bit about the, the, the story that my, uh, my Aunt, Maddie, Aunt Maddie had told me uh, that enlarged on the story that my grandmother had given me about her grandmother's escape from slavery. Well, anyway, mm-hmm. Aunt Maddie said that my grandmother's grandmother had left a child behind when she escaped, and she could never find the child. Well, this DNA match that I had, when I worked on her family tree more, I found her ancestor who was the sister of my grandmother's grandmother, and I found her in the 1870 census for Louisville, Kentucky. And as I looked down the list of the people that were in her household, I saw Uh a surname 
that jumped out at me. And it wasn't the surname of my great-great-grandmother uh, or the other members of her family. The surname mm-hmm. was Pendergrast. And it struck oh. a note because I knew that the second slaveholder that my grandmother's grandmother had, the one that impregnated her, his last name was Pendergrass. So I thought, you know, could this be the child she left behind? And as I began to look at it more closely, unlike my my, uh, uh, great-great-grandmother's sister Lucinda, this Pendergrass uh, person was listed as a mulatto, and all of Uh the rest of them were listed as black. Then Uh they had him listed as, I think it was a stepchild or uh, something of that nature, so you knew that he wasn't one of Lucinda's uh, children, that he was someone else that was living with them but was connected to them somehow. And as I looked at it even further and looked at the date of his birth, it coincided with my great-great-grandmother's escape. Wow. I believe I found the child, and the good thing about the story is, although she could not find him during slavery, he was reunited with her family after slavery. Oh, that's and he so went beautiful. on. He that's became terrible. a he became a teacher uh, at a school that was funded by the Freedmen's Bureau uh, uh, right there in Louisville. He's one of the first black school teachers there. And then years later, and, and Bernice and I are going to get into this uh, in a project that I'm working on under her sponsorship. Uh, he uh-huh. became one of the homesteaders and and ended up buying uh, property in Colorado where he had a ranch and where he spent his final days. So there's so much about the families of our uh-huh. ancestors who escaped from slavery that we may not know because we tend to focus on the escape and we tend to focus on their lives after the escape. But right. there's a whole lot more to it. And if you only focus on that escape, you're missing a lot of the really, really good stuff. Love it. Love it. Well, you kind of, you know, touched on my, uh, what I was going to ask about um, the DNA. Um, and so, you know, Janice, you can, can jump in with your question, but I did want to say too, you know, you really speak to the power of doing methodical DNA testing. Um, I think that, you know, it wasn't just, you know, let me get the DNA of this person and that person, but you really broke it down. You know, you, know, you wanted the cousins that were uh, related on this side versus the cousins that were related on that side, um, you know, and how that, um, you know, that really kind of helped you with your breakthrough. Um, it was And tremendous. being organized. Exactly. You really, exactly. you really have to be methodical because the DNA is so rich in what it can give you. And it's such a powerful tool that, I mean, it it will give you the connections that surnames won't give you. And it will get you past those brick walls that you run into with some of the records. You know, right. it, it's something that you really have to, to take seriously. And 
you know, I have to tell you, I was lucky because the DNA match was someone that cooperated with me. And she also had right. a civil rights background, and she knew how important this was to both of us. You know, and if, and if she hadn't helped me, uh, all of this might have still remained lost to us. Hmm. Yep. I love the work that you're doing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what it reminds me of is um, uh, Kathy Marshall, we, well, or the other name is uh, Kanika, she said, you know, doing the research is not, a goal. It's a mandate because uh-huh. we all have this calling to research, yes. document, and share the story. And so uh, you're definitely doing that. So moving forward, um, one of the points you shared with us is when doing this kind of work, be prepared to learn something, some difficult things, but don't let it stop you from learning all you can. Please share with our listeners why this is so important when researching. Well, it's important because as you get into this and start to realize the reality of what these documents are telling you, it can be incredibly emotional. And you can get so overcome with emotion that you just say, you know, I'm not going any further. You know, how could you take a child from his mother and, and enslave him? Or how could you assault a a teenage girl and impregnate her, you know, how could Uh you force people to work um, under these kinds of conditions, but you have to be able to go past those emotions because our ancestors are crying out to us to tell their story. Uh Many of them, Mm -hmm. you know, didn't have the blessings of, of years and years of schooling like we have. And right. they had difficult lives and didn't have the time to record in writing their stories. But their stories are still there because those stories are real. And it's right. through the research that we learn those stories. And we have to press past the emotions. And like I said, when I discovered this family that had enslaved my ancestors, um, I had some trepidation about making contact with them. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, getting past that fear and reaching out to those people was the best thing I could have done because mm-hmm. these were people of goodwill and they wanted mm-hmm. me to know the story. And, you know, when I went down there and met them, they took a whole afternoon off to show me this plantation, to show me the plantation house, to show me where they uh, grinded wheat to turn into flour, to show me the slave cabins, cabin that was still there, to tell me that it was the enslaved people who made the bricks that, you know, the slave cabins and the slaveholders' house were made out of. I mean, they were good people. And so you've got to be able to get past those emotions to be able to find those stories because otherwise yeah. those stories will be lost, lost to history. And, and lost on the other hand, that's a very sometimes. valid point. Yeah. Right. When people don't want to <laughs> share with you, though, just always know there's another way. If you're researching and you're determined and you, you encounter people that don't want to share with you, it will still come to you. I always say when you, when you are focused and determined, what you need will come mm-hmm. to you, whether people want to share with you or not. So you, don't, you also don't let so that stop I, you. 
You don't want to give I, it to I me? I'll, oh, I'll find a way. <laughs> mm-hmm, I, I couldn't mm-hmm. agree with you more. And the beauty of it today is the DNA databases are getting larger and larger. So, right. you know, if somebody doesn't want to help you or is ashamed of the slaveholding past, there's somebody else out there of goodwill who will right. help you and will right. enable you to learn. And, you know, I, I've been doing this, this kind of work for, you know, more than 40 years now, and I'm not giving away my age now. But, you know, I think of experiences in the South and some of these courthouses before a lot of these, line, these records went online. And, you know, I remember one time, and I'm going to try to say this briefly, I was researching and there was an elderly white lady that saw me. I was the only black person in this, this little town in the courthouse. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to know what I was doing. And I thought, okay, let me be polite and quick with her because I've got a lot of ground to cover. I don't have a lot of time. So I told her, and she was polite, and she went on about her way. Well, I searched all day and was finding next to nothing. But by the end of that day, that old lady came over to me with a huge packet of documents, dropped them on the table in front of me, and she said, I believe this is what you're looking for. Get out. So, and, you know, she's a complete stranger. So you're right, Janice. If somebody stands in your way, there's somebody else who will be there to get you where you need to be. Right. Because I exactly. believe our ancestors want us to know these stories. And I believe sometimes there are spiritual forces at hand that we may not have any idea of that are guiding us, protecting us, and helping us because this is our family that we are trying Amen to, to that. know yes. and trying mm-hmm. to understand. That's right. That's right. You know, that fear is real, um, you know, and trying to, and maybe maybe not fear, but, you know, as you said, trepidation and just the hesitation, you know, and not being sure what you're going to uh, be, be faced with if you do approach mm-hmm. some of the white descendants. Well, you know, of one, of, one of the things that helped me with that, Earlier in my career, I was a civil rights trial attorney for the Civil Rights Division of the Department, U.S. Department of Justice, and they were mm-hmm. sending wow. me into some little towns in the South to prosecute uh, hate crimes, and, you know, some of them places were, you know, kind of sketchy and kind of scary, but, you know, uh-huh. you do things like that, and you kind of get to a point where you realize that um, what you're doing is right. And when you are in the right and doing the right thing, there is no force on earth that can stop you. Mm. Now, that's Mm. powerful. That is. (laughs) That is powerful. That is. So I think at this point, I mean, you kind of covered, you know, that question as well. And, I mean, mean, were there also private records um, that you felt were really helpful um, from contacting some of the descendants of the slaveholding families? Well, let me tell you, their records were incredible. They told <laughs> me that their grandmother had kept an old trunk of family papers, and when she died, they went through them, and they realized these things are of such historic importance. That's when they put them on CD and began to catalog them. But not only did they have the bills of sale, which... I have not been able to find in a lot of other locations, 
but they mm-hmm. also had a document where they had sold some enslaved people to um, a slave trader, and he took mm-hmm. them down the Mississippi River to Louisiana and wrote back telling them about the trip and his expenses and about the enslaved people and what happened to them. Wow. I mean, all of this stuff was, you know, wouldn't have been available to me but for the slaveholders' descendants who had yeah. these private records, you know. And so you really, you really owe it to yourself to reach out uh, to people, you know, because these were documents that were in no library that, Right. There's no index in the courthouse that's going to lead you to any of this. These are private papers that these people had maintained all these years. And sometimes in some families they have these things, but they're ashamed to talk about them because right. everybody right. knows how wrong slavery was now, or at least I hope they do. But, you know, some people are afraid to share because they're afraid of what your reaction is going to be. So, you know, if you talk to these people and let them know what you're doing, how long you've been doing it, and how serious you are about it, and and give them a chance to get to know you and become comfortable with you, they can help you tremendously because they have the records that you will not find anywhere else. That's right. That's powerful. That's right. Well, uh, Charles, what are some parting words of inspiration that you can share with our listeners? Well, I would just say this. I would say your ancestors want you to know about them. You are their legacy. And they want you to know their struggles and what they went through so that you would be here. And the Mm -hmm. records of their struggles are there, but it's up to you to seek those records. And when you do, the stories you will find will literally blow your mind. Yes. This is so timely, so timely. And I'm sure not just for our listeners, but, you know, also for myself because of some research I've been doing, um, you know, and it's, it is my responsibility, and, you know, you just have that calling. So, and my mind is blown. Yes. I mean, listening to your story and the way that it went from, you know, one story passed down to you investigating it further and then doing this DNA research and then doing it methodically and just getting more, you know, meat on the bones of the story is just, you know, phenomenal, phenomenal. So, Charles Holman III, we want to thank you so, so much for sharing with us and our listeners. Well, you're welcome. Um, yes, yes. And if you have questions or comments for, uh, for Charles, please visit our Speak On It page on Facebook, um, and you can leave your comment or question there, and he will be happy to answer and engage. Um, we want to thank our listeners for joining us, and we look forward to sharing with you during our next segment of Speak On It. Speak On It is a podcast and is immediately available to listen to at your leisure. Speak On It is sponsored by Bernice Bennett of Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Thank you.